we're really now trying to go up the chain a little bit to very wealthy families that have their own investment offices. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, guys, and welcome to another edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. In Los Angeles, I'm Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Before we dive into today's show, I wanted to take a few seconds to thank all the loyal listeners out there who just tune in every week and so keep it up and help spread the word. You're all a bunch of champions for the continued loyalty and commitment and well done. On today's show, we are chatting with Jonathan Toomley, who has gone from raising capital from friends and family to helping close on his multifamily deals to now raising capital for a fund or a REIT, which stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. G'day, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, we're, uh, we're what, 18 episodes deep, I think we are right now, or 20 episodes deep. And uh, you're the third Jonathan we've had on the show. So uh, <laughs> very common name, very common name. <laughs> Jonathan started in real estate investing in 2011 and founded Two Bridges Asset Company in 2013. Previously, Jonathan practiced law with Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher LLP and Struk and Lavin LLP. Jonathan graduated from Harvard College and Columbia Law School and serves on the board of Harvard Real Estate Alumni Organization. But Jonathan, before we dive into all the juicy stuff, can you tell the listeners something that most people might not know about you unrelated to being a successful real estate entrepreneur? Sure. Most people who don't know me personally don't know that I speak fluent Japanese wow. because I lived in Japan for a number of years back right after college before I went to law school and... I also wound up marrying someone from Japan. So I speak Japanese at home with my kids. Fantastic. Whereabouts in Japan did you live? Yeah, I lived in uh, in Tokyo and Yokohama. Right, right. I love Tokyo. I've only been there once, but it's an incredible city. H how many years were you there? Were you based there for? So I was there for altogether about four years. Right. Okay. That's a significant period of time. What were you doing at it? Uh, I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends who have moved to Japan go there to teach English. Were you there to teach English? The last two years I was there, I was working at a big Japanese law firm okay. uh, because I was pl planning on going to law school. So that you know that was kind of part of my plan of getting into law school. But uh, but I just want to mention that when I was in Japan, it seemed that like everybody I met in Japan who wasn't Japanese was from Queensland. I don't know why that was. <laughs> Tokyo at the time was completely completely overridden with Aussies, but particularly people from the Gold Coast. So really, that's interesting. Uh, um, we're, we're everywhere, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't escape you, you you guys. So, so Jonathan, with that being said, can you give your, the listeners a more in-depth look at your background and what motivated you to leave your day job as a lawyer, and I'm assuming in you know, high successful law firms, to pursue real estate investing full-time? There's got to be a why factor there. Sure. So you know, just backing up a little bit before that, I never really thought that I would go into business for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom was a high school English teacher, and they pushed me very, very heavily into going into academia. And I thought that that was the route I was going to go. I got sort of disenchanted with that when I was in college and decided to go to law school because I had gotten this Japan bug. And I thought somehow 
I could do something related to Japan if I went to law school. But I, I really was kind of ignorant about the whole business world, about really anything outside of academia. And went to law school, you know, for those reasons, not really knowing what I was getting into. And I liked it quite a bit, actually, which you're not supposed to. And I remember having a having lunch with a professor. They went to Columbia for law school and they had this program where they actually gave the faculty members money to take out first year students for lunch. And so a bunch of my friends and I asked out a particular professor for, for lunch and uh, he was asking everybody, you know, how do you like law school? And I said, I like it. And he said, oh, that's a bad sign. And that was, it turned out to be pretty foretelling. Uh, when I got to practice, I, I actually liked it for the first few years and thought like, wow, this is, you know, I found my calling. But I had a little bit of a charmed existence my first few years. I was doing litigation and instead of spending, you know, most first and second year associates spend in those days, you know, their whole, uh, their whole lives with their nose in a box of documents, you know, that are covered with dust and you're trying to, you know, finger through these documents to find stuff that's, that's relevant. You know, now the equivalent would be they're sitting in front of a computer screen, you know, hitting click, 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 you know, relevant, not relevant, relevant, not relevant for hours on end. But I, I managed to avoid all that. And I was like writing briefs for high level appellate courts and running in and out of court with, with a partner and like all this kind of great stuff. So I thought, Oh boy, this is awesome. And then it all kind of came home to roost, and I wound up being stuck on this case in in London, you know, which sounds great, right? Mm -hmm. But and everybody was jealous. Oh, you get to spend all this time in London, but you know, the inside of a conference room in London looks a lot like the inside of a conference room in New York, and <laughs> you know, other than other than the uh, the little sandwiches without crusts on the bread that they would bring into us at lunchtime, which <laughs> didn't get in New York, it was pretty much the same as being in New York, right? Except you know, except that people talk funny over it. <laughs> I kind of feel like you guys actually in Australia. It's a similar funny. But anyway, um, the, so it all sort of came crashing down for me at that point. I got very disenchanted um, with, with the work. But I spent, you know, another almost nine years after that trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life when I grew up. Right. Uh, and I slowly started getting an interest in in finance and real estate. I mean, I'd had an interest in real estate since I was a kid, but I never really thought of it as, as a career, you know, that I could go into. The only thing I knew from real estate was like, there was real estate brokers and I didn't really want to do that. But I started, as I got a little more sophisticated and started seeing what was, you know, what was out there, I started getting interested in real estate and I, I made up my mind and then the crash of 2008 happened. Right. And at that point, I, you know, I felt just grateful to have a job, even though I didn't like my job particularly much. But also, there was no chance at that point that I was going to be able to compete for a finance job as a, you know, thirty-five-year-old career changer mm -hmm. when, when there were, you know, literally thousands of guys with great resumes out on the street looking for work right. at the time because of the recession. So I shelved that plan. You know, really, I didn't have much choice. Um, <laughs> And kind of, you know, wrote things out and started dabbling in real estate a bit, started, you know, looking at properties a bit. The Because of the recession, the work really dried up, uh, the legal work dried up. And right. that was unexpected because as a litigator, you know, I'd been through the dot-com crash. And when that happened, the litigation work just exploded because, you know, in a recession, everybody's looking for somebody to blame and to see who they can collect from. 
so they everybody's suing everybody and right. it's 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 a great time for to be a litigator in terms of staying busy so we ex- were expecting that to happen after the crash but the crash was so bad they didn't even spend money on litigation i mean they just weren't just you know everyone was curled up in a fetal position doing you know nothing so so the the work never appeared the way we thought it would and i was sitting around at my desk kind of surfing the internet for a living which you know may sound it's like fun, but it's really awful to be killing time all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a horrible way to, to spend your time. Right, exactly. And I started looking at property, like pretty seriously. It started getting, on, getting online. You know, it was then really first possible to get online and look at, look at property online through sites like Trulia. And I just started looking at you know, duplexes and, and triplexes in the New York area. Um, New York was too expensive, but outside New York City – and, and just started underwriting them and kind of figured out how to underwrite them, like figure out how to kind of analyze them. And, and that's how I would spend my day. So right. I kind of educated myself in real estate. And so meanwhile, you know, fast forward a couple of years, it's now 2011, the work hasn't returned. And, you know, my, my firm finally decided that they just didn't want to pay me that ridiculous salary they were paying me to surf the internet anymore. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't surprised. I would have, frankly, they would have fired me a long time before, but they, you know, they, they liked me and they thought the work was coming back and they kind of, you know, they were very good to me. So I, I appreciate that, that they waited as long as possible. So 2011 came along, I got, uh, terminated from the job and which was at the same time scary because I had a wife and I had a two year old daughter and a mortgage, mm-hmm. um, but also, really exhilarating because I was so sick of my job. You know, it was really soul crushing, even when it was good, you know, sitting, surfing the internet was soul crushing, but the work was soul crushing for another reason, because when I was busy, I was just working, you know, 12, 14 hour days, seven days a week, I practically destroyed my marriage. And then the recession, the recession saved my marriage, I think. So I was really, really eager to get out. And when I got terminated, I just had no stomach to look for another law job. I just, I, the thought of trying to interview for a law job just made my stomach turn. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had to look for something else. And I had started kind of putting my toe in a little bit, looking around for, you know, real estate jobs. And anytime somebody said that they were in in real estate, I was like, I'm having coffee with this person. I'm having lunch with this person. And I just talked to everybody I possibly could. And, you know, one day I sat down for, for coffee with this guy, you know, who's a, an old, I don't mean physically, you know, old, but I mean like a experienced real estate guy in New York who's a commercial broker. And he said to me, look, Jonathan, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, at your age and with your experience, no one is ever going to hire you in the city right. working in real estate. Right. You know, that, at that point I was now past 40 and, um, you know, I had spent my whole life as a lawyer and he was like, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's not going to happen unless someone just takes a liking to you and offers to just partner up with you. Like that's the only way it's going to happen. Right. So lo and behold, I'm out there networking and I met a woman who owned some property with her husband, wanted to take this bigger. And we started talking. And one day she said, listen, I've been thinking, how would you like to become my partner? <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I was like, God, Richard just said this to me a couple of days ago. And uh, I said, okay, let me think it over. I wanted to talk to a couple of friends that I trust about this. And I went to them and said, hey, look, you know, 
this is on the table. What do you think? And they said, well, let me, let me meet her. And if I like her, then, you know, and I think she knows what she's talking about, then I'm going to invest money with you and not like a little bit of money. I mean, they were talking like serious money. Really? Both, okay. both, both of these guys were pretty successful. Right. So now I had this situation where it's like I had, I had an offer to become a partner and I had two investors lined up, you know, with enough money to do a couple of deals. Straight, straight away. By the sound straight away. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, I, I really, I guess I should jump on this. So I did. And, um, and so that was my first, uh, kind of break into the, into the business. Fantastic. That's, that's an incredible story. And I'm sure it can be a lot of people out there listening could draw some commonalities between getting fed up with their day job. And, and, and as you said, not, not wanting to go for another interview at a law firm ever again, it just, you sort of got to the point and you're like, I'm done. I can't do this. And I guess it's a little bit of, I don't know if you want to call it good luck or just, you know, I don't believe in good luck, but you probably positioned yourself quite well to have this lady offer you a partnership straight up. Now, was she experienced in real estate herself or was it sort of more two new people coming together to form something awesome? She was more experienced, but she hadn't done it as a business before. Right. So she had, she and her husband owned four or five apartment complexes Mm -hmm. in Texas and Louisiana. So they, they had five or 600 units of, of wow. property okay. together. And she wanted to go out and take this bigger and start using other people's money. And her husband wasn't interested. He just was like happy with the way things were. You know, he had some of his own money. He could invest in stuff when he wanted to. He was a no, you know, he didn't feel any need to go build this into an empire. Right. You know, he just, he just wanted to, to have a, you know, a nice comfortable life, which he did, but she, you know, she wanted to go and make this big. So it, it was a pure startup in terms of our experience with, you know, running a business and starting a, a real estate business per se, right, but, right, right, but, right. but she was not a novice at real estate. Right. Well, it doesn't, it's having five to 600 units. Is, yeah. <laughs> it's not no novice, but I, I understand what you're saying in terms of going out and using other people's money to scale your, your real estate business. And we've had yeah. a few people on the show who, have you know no units and gone out and started using other people's money to scale their business. So very, yeah. very impressive. Um, so John, so guys, the reason I got Jonathan on the show today was to understand the difference between just bootstrapping to investors together on a deal by deal basis to to starting a real estate investment trust or, or fund. So Jonathan, let's start at the beginning. You've quit your day job. You stumbled across this this lady who, who's offered you a partnership. You start buying multifamily deals. I'm assuming you're buying also. I'm jumping the gun. <laughs> what type of deals were you buying? And, and then you got to a point where you said, what was the motivating factor to say, I need to start a, a, a trust or, or a fund and not just use investors' money on a deal-by-deal basis? Okay, well, so there's there's a couple of steps in between. So let me I'll just finish up the story so everybody sure can understand understand the context. So um, so my so my partner and I went out and started looking at deals. We had it took us a long time to get the first deal. You know, as as I'm sure a lot of people have experienced when you're when you're new, it's very hard to get brokers to pay attention to you. You know, they're certainly not going to show you their good listings as someone that they don't know, you know, so you're kind of stuck with looking at stuff on LoopNet or looking at kind of the real draggy deals that other people don't want. And after kind of plugging away for, uh, you know, the better part of a year, 
we finally found a deal that we wanted to do. It was actually something we looked at. It was on the market. We thought it was too much. They cut the price considerably. And at that point, it made sense. So we jumped on that deal. We got that under contract. And then really shortly thereafter, we got another building under contract with the same seller. Mm-hmm. And they were both in Louisiana. And so basically, we could do one deal for each of the two investors that I brought. And so we jumped into it. We you know, started doing due diligence, flying around, you know, incurred legal fees, all this sort of stuff. Right. And we were getting very close to closing on the first deal, which was in a place called Homa, Louisiana. And the bank called us up and said, we're not doing the deal. Right. Why? And, Why? Well, so this was 2012. And I think, I think it was just because it was just a very bad lending environment. Right. And the banks were getting very, very skittish about stuff at that time. Um, when, when they had first, when we first showed them the deal, they were very excited about it. It was going to cash flow really, really well. But, you know, I'm not really sure what changed on their side, but they sent their underwriter down to, to look at the deal as kind of like the last, really, you know, that's usually one of the last stages in the due diligence process for the sure. banks. Sure, sure. And he came, they came back and said, we're not doing the deal. And we said, why not? Mm. So we said, you know, you know, aren't you going to wait till the engineer's report comes back? And they're like, no, we don't care what the engineer's report says. Okay, well, so why aren't you doing the deal? So they, they showed us the report from the, this, you know, the guy they'd sent down. And it was full of stuff like just crazy stuff like the breezeways are dirty. I mean, you know, <laughs> there were, they, they found, we found in a vacant unit, the place was next to a golf course. They said we found a broken window and a golf ball inside a vacant unit. And, and then, and then the last thing was that there, there were 10 down units, which we knew, like, that's why we were buying it. It was a real value deal. And, you know, we'd already priced out how much it was going to cost. We were getting more than that money back from the seller at closing. I mean, it was, it was going to really do well. And the, and the bank, you know, when we finally did get the engineering report back, they had said, you know, they had said there's $60,000 of CapEx. We were already planning to put in double that. You right. know? It was – so when I talked to other banker friends later, they told me like that's crazy. They just wanted out of the deal. They just decided they didn't want to do it and they came up with an excuse. Yeah. So, it sounds um, like it, right? <laughs> totally, yeah. I mean because none, none of those reasons make any sense at all. No, no. But you know, we were out a bunch of money out of pocket right? Mm-hmm. because we had legal fees. We had survey. We had bank fees. We had you know, all of the due diligence costs we'd flown down there. I mean we were – we were out a lot of money. So we terminated the deal. We had a financing contingency, which you could still get in those days. And we terminated. We couldn't find another lender to come in. So we terminated that deal, eight losses. And then on the other deal with the same seller, we, we actually found something in due diligence that my partner didn't like. Uh, it's not something that today with my experience I would have terminated the deal over, but she didn't like it. So she, she said we had to terminate the deal. You know, I, I felt less experienced. I d- deferred to her judgment on it. And so now we were kind of out of pocket on two deals. Right. And this was really, really painful, as you can imagine. I mean, yes. it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket. And here I was, you know, true entrepreneur, no income, living out of savings, you know, investing savings in this business. And now we've just lost two deals, you know, two deals and all those out of pocket costs. You know, I was in true entrepreneur spirit, you know, was self-financing all of this out of savings, mm-hmm. living out of my savings. So counting on closing these deals to 
bring you know a get the money back I put into the deals, get you know an acquisition fee to kind of bring some cash in the door and start you know making some money on the deals and then so that didn't happen, and so now we're out all this money and time so on top of it, my partner and I had over the course of the time that we were working together sort of run into the fact that we had pretty different outlooks on on how how to run a business and and different philosophies of of investing and so once we these two deals went south we just decided like you know it's probably best just to part ways now while we're still on good terms with each other and um and just kind of you know wrap it up and and each go our separate ways so right so we did that we we dissolved the company you know, a couple of so here it was you know now almost two years later after losing my law job and you know, with no income the whole time trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and mm-hmm. um, I sat down with one of those original investors that I talked about you know it was a good friend of mine and I said hey look uh, oh an Aussie by the way um, <laughs> oh, yeah and uh, from Queensland and um, good bloke so, <laughs> and uh, so I I said to him hey. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. I, I might have to go back to practicing law. And he said, don't, don't be so hasty. Why don't you and I go into business together? Mm-hmm. So we worked out a plan where he, you know, bought a part of the company that I was founding and, you know, backed us and was going to continue doing some investing in the deals. And uh, that's, that's how Two Bridges was formed. So, we got two bridges, you know, up and running, and then once again, it was another, you know, long slog to kind of start getting deals in the door. So this was the beginning of 2013. We um, we formed the company. I had so during the time I was with my my old company, which was called TRB, we I, we had decided we were looking at, at East Texas and and um, Louisiana, where my partner had property already. And, but we, we were already kind of looking ahead and wanted to open some other markets. Right. And I had been looking at South Carolina, mm-hmm. partly because I like Charleston a lot, but also because I knew it was growing very fast. And so at some point I, I had some friends down there and I started asking around if they knew any brokers, they connected me with a guy named Tyler Flesh, who had like, you know, incredible multifamily experience for years and years and years of being in the business on the buy side. And he was now doing some development on his own and doing some brokerage. And uh, my friends connected me with him. And so after we started Two Bridges, that was like the first phone call I made. You know, I called Tyler. I'm like, okay, Tyler, I'm in business for myself now. You know, let's go. So he started looking for deals for me. But again, it took a while. You know, it took us the better part of a year until we finally got, you know, we're looking at all, you know, he'd call brokers and even though he knew all the brokers down there, I was an unknown entity, you know, and, and people were just sending us kind of the stuff that was sitting around, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like we were getting to look at the good stuff, you know? Right, right, right. And what, what finally changed was Tyler kind of called in a favor with one of his development partners and they set us up with a family friend who was a broker out in Western South Carolina in the Spartanburg area. And, um, and when we went out to visit her, she showed us a deal that literally had come in like the day before. Mm-hmm. And 
we were the first people to see it. We rushed out there. We looked at the property and we just jumped on it. We made an offer right away. It got accepted. And that, that was our, that was our first deal. That was called Valley Creek. And, um, we were in business after that I think got very fast where we did four deals. Um, so 2014, basically the year 2014, we did, we did four deals, 400 units in that, in that uh, space. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible, yeah. Jonathan. That's uh so it sounds like a lot of trials and tribulations to get to where you are today. Like that's a good, what, three and a half years of, what, four years of leaving your day job and then finally getting to a point where you started to be profitable and, and, and be happy with the direction that you're going with, with your company. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a, it was a four year slog um, to get to the point where we had a little bit of stability. Um, but, you know, it, it never ends, right? You right. never... You, you never, well, at least not, I'm sure at some point you get big enough, you have a little more stability, but you know, you're, when you're in the startup mode, it, it definitely takes you time to get there. And then even when you think you get there, you're not quite there yet. So, right. um, so you'd ask me sort of how we get to, uh, to the fund. Right, so, right. so you've got to the point where you now hundred units deep, um, four deals under your belt and, you now stay. Where do we where do we go from from here? So we're there. We're we're four deals in. We've got four hundred units. We're now we're trying to figure out you know what to do what to do next. So I'm looking to grow, but at this point, what happens is my my two main investors, for reasons unrelated to what we're doing, both tell me, "Hey, look, I'm just going to be out of the game for a while." So. Um, you know, one had some personal issues going on. One had, one was located in Japan, and with the you know the the dollar rising so strongly against the yen, they said, "Look, we just it just doesn't make sense for us right now mm-hmm. to be these deals. They're just too expensive." Yep. So now I was sort of back to square one. At that point, you know, we also had this issue where to get debt from the bank, you've got to have balance sheet equal to the size of the loan, mm-hmm. or better right and right. so we also had balance sheet issues and i started talking to like my mortgage brokers and you know talking to a lot of people to try to figure out how to solve first just trying to solve the, the balance sheet issue and they we basically kind of came out at the fact that if we had a fund the fund could supply the balance sheet so that was the first thing that made me think okay maybe we should raise a fund and then the second thing was having kind of like the two main go-to folks say, okay, look, you know, we're just not in the position to backstop these deals anymore. Okay. Well, so now where's the money going to come from? Mm-hmm. So we started kind of thinking seriously about raising a fund. Right. And that was at the beginning of last year. We started making some effort towards that. And uh, I started bringing in some other folks with fund experience. So I've been working with um, you know Tyler, who I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and, uh, another friend of mine. Um, actually, I shouldn't say his friend is—he's become a friend of mine, but he's a experienced real estate guy. So you know, we're we're teaming up to try to bring this fund into existence. Um, we had we had a little distracted over the the summer because we came across a, a deal that we just really wanted to do. It was right down the street from one of the properties we own, from a seller we'd done business before with. You know. And a deal we felt we couldn't resist, but unfortunately, we were not able to close that deal 
on a syndication, on a syndication basis. So we sort of burned that time. Now we're finally back to where we should have, you know, where we started out over the summer last year, which is to, to raise the fund. Right. Right. And like everything, you sort of have two wheels going, you know, you have the, with that last statement, you're a little bit of feet in both courts of trying to find investors to, to, to start the fund or, you know, contribute to the fund, but also keeping your eye out for new deals. So how does it work when you're looking for new deals now? Are you trying to spend all your time just raising the capital for the fund and getting it closed? Or you're still trying to keep your eye on the, the prize and, and, and identifying good investment opportunities for the fund? So I, we, we learned our lesson on this last deal which was that if the money is not in place, you have to be kind of wary about jumping on deals. Now, you know, when we jumped into that deal, we really felt confident that we could close it because we were getting a lot of inbound inquiries about doing the next deal. You know, mm-hmm. then when it came down to brass tacks, we had a, again a couple of major folks who were interested in it who could have done the whole deal. Who said, you know, we had one pull out at the last minute because they said, look, we've, we're closing two other deals by year end. We just don't have the bandwidth to do this right now. But we love the deal, you know. And the lesson there was that we just needed to have more people, you know, in our orbit to show deals to to make sure that they're closed. Right. So the so we're really focused now on fundraising. You know, we we feel like we have a really really good reputation with the brokerage community. We've closed a bunch of deals there. We we we're on good terms with folks. You know, we we see off market stuff. So I'm not really worried about the pipeline mm-hmm. once we start getting commitments in place for the fund. Right. Um, so I'm really focused on the fundraising at, right now. That's, that's really priority number one. And I really expect to be doing nothing but that for the next you know, three months. Right, right. And- like anyone, I, you know, I'm a syndicator myself. That is probably the number one issue. You've got a couple of deals under your belt. You've got some good relationships with the brokerage firm, but then your business really just turns into how do you get more investors to fund your deals, right? And yeah. I always ask syndicators who come on the show, how are you finding your investors? What what are you doing differently? How are you finding the high net worth individuals to show off it, to show these deals to, and then to still have them say, well, we don't have actually have anything now, but we're going to find something once we close this fund? Or is the advertising, the fact that you have a fund sort of enticement enough to say, oh, I'm going to stick around and see what these guys come up with. How does that sort of work when you're trying to find investors? Well, so, I mean, the approach that we're taking to investors, to to finding investors is we've actually gone out and gotten some lists of family offices and high net worth, and we're just going to be pursuing those, you know, through through warm leads. Uh, You know, we've kind of combed the list. We found that that between the three of us, we have a lot of, you know, some of those folks we actually know already. Some of them, we, you know, we're sort of one connection away from mm-hmm. on, on LinkedIn or whatever. We can go in with a warm lead. So we've just spent a lot of time getting our getting our pitch right. Think that we have a really attractive offering because, you know, we're located in New York. Um, as folks probably know, the real estate here is trading at such high valuations there's very, very little meat on the bone. And everybody's out there looking for yield now. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if they don't have the connections outside New York City to look at deals, which a lot of these high net worth folks don't have, um, they really have no way to get into higher yielding deals. You know, we have a whole pipeline of higher yielding deals in the South. So, so I feel that you know, when we get in front of folks, they'll find our offering very compelling. It's really now just kind of 
getting our targets together and then you know reaching out to start making pitches to folks right right interesting so so, so you you're making those connections through second to you know first degree or second degree people that you might know and you're yeah. basically saying you're really just focusing on that pitch and trying to get introductions and I guess coffees and, and, and I don't know, you know, drinks or something to get in front of those people, as many as you can. Um, well, I mean, we've actually, so we, we've decided this time around to take a different approach. Like that was the approach that we had before doing syndications and meeting people one-on-one. We're, we're really now trying to go up the chain a little bit yep. to uh, basically to, to very wealthy families that have their own investment offices. So for us, it's a matter of pitching them, reaching out to them, getting appointments with them to go and pitch them. You know, these are folks who are in the business of making investments. So we we love the smaller investors, and and I, you know, uh, it tugs at my heartstrings a little bit to be honest with you, because one of the reasons why I like doing this business and I got into it is that I I feel like there's lots of opportunities for really wealthy people to invest in these deals, but for for guys like I was, you know, guys who were lawyers or doctors or whatever, who have, you know, have got some savings and want to get into these, these good deals, you know, they can, there's nothing they can do. They could buy a, you know, a read on the market, they could buy mutual funds, but they just don't have the opportunity to get into the really good deals. So right. I, I always had thought of this as a, as a way of helping people who have some investable funds, but who are not high net worth or, or super wealthy to get into these deals. The problem is it's just very difficult to find those people, as you know, right. You know, it's, it's, where do you find them? How do you find enough of them? Exactly. And, and doing it one at a time through coffees takes (laughs) a lot of time. It's, it's very tough. And so even though I, I still am always racking my brains for how I could reach more of those folks, you know, do it more efficiently, um, have more of a kind of a lead generation machine, at work to bring more of those folks together for the time being, it's just, it's just not practical right. given what we do. We, right, we, right. we have to go to the bigger, the you know, fish. to folks, the bigger fish. I mean, people who, who can, you know, write a $1 million check or a $5 million check, you mm-hmm. know, so, um, that, that, yeah. that's, that, that's incredible. And, and one, I definitely want to have an episode on this show and I will eventually on how to get a perfect pitch. And, and you alluded to that a little bit. And so your game plan is to re- refine your pitch and go after the big fish or the big whales. And mm. I, I have heard, you know, I listened to a couple of other podcasts about family offices. And for those people who don't out there listening, who don't know what a family office is, a family office is typically people or families who have a net worth of over $50 million and they have a team of people that look after the type of investments that they place their money in. And so Jonathan and his group would approach those team members to say, hey, we're interested, we've got a few deals for you. Would you be interested in investing with us? And, and those types of introductions are very, you know, I'm assuming they're hard to come by, Jonathan. Is that correct? You need a lot of credibility. They don't just happen, you know, you, just, you don't just pick up the, call, the phone and, and get an interview. It, it takes a lot of, as you're saying, warm leads to, to get an introduction. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why we, you know, we will do some cold calling if we have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I really think it's better. It's always better. It really sort of, no matter what kind of relationship you're trying to establish, if you can go in with a, with a warm introduction, it yep. just, people will give you the time of day. They'll, they'll, they'll talk to you, you know, out of courtesy to the person who introduced you. So that'll be our first cut. That's sort of what we consider the low hanging fruit right. is the, the family offices where, where we have a, a some kind of connection. And, mm-hmm. and then you know, for the ones that we don't, 
um, we'll just have to pick up the phone and and uh, see if we can get in, get a foot in the door and um, you know and talk. And at the same time, it's constantly you know constantly asking for referrals, asking for introductions every time you every chance you get. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I find it to be the case that if you if you if you go into these situations with you know with the right attitude and show up professionally and uh, you know you you have credibility then. People are quite happy to talk to you and they're quite happy to make introductions for you. I'm reading a book at the moment about how to pitch pitch anything. Great, great book. It's a great book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've read it a yeah. few I've read it a few times in the past, but it's always good to go back and and uh and refresh on the memory because like yourself, Jonathan, I'm at that stage of trying to find higher net worth individuals or more guys to help me fund my deals and I think that's definitely you hit the nail on the head in, in getting, and we're digressing a little bit of how you start a fund, but that's this all got plays into the fact of how you grow your real estate business, and you get to a point where you need to start going for those bigger fish for the funds that you're trying to raise to to close quickly on deals, because as you said, if you, you're trying to close on deals but the money's not there, and you know, trust me, I'm in situations like that right now where I'm closing on some yeah. larger deals, no, hopefully knowing that I've got some guys to to back me, but it's not a hundred percent confident that they're, they're there yet. And it's, it's nice to have the, the security and the surety um, of, of a fund and, and back to pitching anything. It gets to a point where you, when you're going to those high net worth individuals, you need to have uh, a good game plan and a good, and a good story to tell. And, and as you said, be professional, rock up, you've got some credibility. Let's, let's take that yeah. business to the next level. And that next level for you right now is, is starting a fund and getting to those family offices. So, so well done, mate. I, um, big, big, big pat on the back. And, um, when are you looking to close? You, you said before three months, the next three months you're focusing on capital raising. Is that sort of are you put drawing a line in the sand to say, look, whatever we've got by this day, that's what we're moving forward with. No, no, not at all. I mean, our, our plan is to raise a fund of at least twenty-five million mm-hmm. over the, hopefully the next six months. Maybe it'll take us a year, but we we are committed to going out there and basically sort of getting as much as we can so that we can start doing deals again. Right. So you know, we we will we'll do we'll probably have a couple of rounds of closing in the fund. Uh, you know, we won't wait till we've got the whole twenty-five before Got we it. start. We'll probably close at ten, close another at you know twenty, mm-hmm. and then maybe the last five come in, or you know, we'll go over twenty-five if we can get it. We're super focused and highly committed on you know getting out there, making as many pitches as we can in the next ninety days, and uh, you know just just closing up as much uh, as many commitments as we can. Because right. there's also you know that dynamic as you kind of alluded to before that it's easier to raise money when you've got deals to show people. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we need to get some momentum behind it. You know, so, you know, we've got the track record, we've got sort of what we call the proof of concept with the deals that we've done already. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll pitch based on that. You know, we'll say there's a ton more of this kind of uh, product out there. So I think we can get the ball rolling on that basis, but it will definitely help the momentum once we start getting some deals in the door and yes. we can show people not just like well, not just we closed these these four deals in 2014 and they're doing well, but that like hey, you know we we, we just closed up. this one, you know we yeah. just closed this one, this one's in the pipeline. Uh, it, it just it just makes things a lot more tangible for people. And how do you handle that? Because I'm I'm the same I'm in the same boat as you. Like oh, I'm not maybe not fame at office level yet, and I'd love to get there uh, soon. But I get the same sort of 
put not pushback, but just like, oh, that's 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 well, done. great, that's great, Reed. You've done a few few big deals. Come to me when you got another one. You know what I mean? And it's sort of like, well, right. uh, well, that, I don't know where the next one's coming from, or, or something like that. And that's that's the hard part. That's a hard juggling act that you sort of start playing because yeah. you you want these guys to commit. You want them to sort of be sitting ready aim fire sort of stuff but you know these you know people have other commitments they've got life to deal with and if you take two months to come back to them with a deal they're sort of like well uh, in that time i've gone off and done something else <laughs> you know so how do you then try and get that commitment when you don't have the deal sitting there and, and is it a different sort of kettle of fish working with the the family offices rather than the smaller investors maybe with a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars I, I think it's a different kettle of fish because we're proposing to raise a raise a fund rather yep. than show them deals. So yep. you know what they're committing to is essentially bringing the money when we bring the deals. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a little bit it's a little bit it's a stronger commitment than like oh yeah I'll look at your deals when you have them. You know, which people's lives change. But you know, but on the syndication note for a second, you know, one thing that I that I learned the the hard way. And when you see people who do syndication successfully, you see that they solve this problem. You know, I I relied too heavily on a, on a couple of people, right? And mm-hmm. you really have to get out there and get a ton more commitments than you actually are ever going to need on a deal. Yes. You know, yes. like you just you can't you can't say okay, I need like a million bucks or something. A million bucks, and so now I've got you know twenty guys with fifty thousand. They've all said yes. yes. You know, you, you've got to. You've got to, and even if you know that, like this is your model, you're doing deals that are going to, you know, you need 1.2 million every time around on the kind of deals that you do. You know, you've got to go out there and have a couple hundred people with 50,000 who have said, "Yeah, I'll look at your deals," uh, so that you know that when you when you have a deal, you got a pretty damn good chance of closing it. You know, or at least you can get close enough that you know then you can run around to a few people and say, look, I just need a hundred to close this deal. You know, put, can you put up another 50 or whatever? Yep. But if you don't have that big network already and they got to be a network, I mean, I have a huge network, but it's not necessarily a huge network of real estate investors, right? You know, right. got to have people who, who are interested in real estate, have the money committed enough to doing it, you know, sort of excited. They got to be real estate people. You know, there's real estate people and non real estate people in this world they can't just be wealthy. They've got to be wealthy, you know, I don't, not necessarily super wealthy, but, you know, they've got to be folks with some money to invest who like real estate. Like that's right. their thing. No, exactly. So. And 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 definitely I've on the first deal that uh, we, we were raising money for is that, yeah, we 11th hour, we just got the thing over the line. It, and it was, yeah. it goes back to being, you didn't rate, you, did, you need to sort of over raise if that makes sense. You know, yes, if you, if you totally. need 1 million, go and get verbal commitments to 1.3 or, or 1.4. Um, yeah. just because, and it's better to say, to reject people into, into the deals. Like, oh, well, actually we've got enough money now and they'll, they'll be hungry for the next one. Like, oh, well, okay, well tell me when your next one is. But on the yeah. other hand, having 50 investors is very time consuming and 50 investors yes. all with, with, with 80 grand, and you know, not, not to, I, I love 50 investors with 80 grand, but it's a little bit like herding cats, you know, like yeah. it's not, it, it, it's a little bit. It's, it's, it's a lot harder and, and, and I with the more sophisticated high net worth individuals, people are on more, as I said, more sophisticated with real estate. And, and as you alluded to, people with maybe fifty or $60,000 might not be as sophisticated of an investor 
uh, as those people with half a million bucks to write a check for. So it's sort of the horse, horses for courses and the type of horse you back to fund your deals. And in, in, in your case, you're backing the, the high net worth individuals, family offices who can write those large sums. So you're really just dealing with, you know, one investor essentially. And it, 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 it yeah. nearly becomes a partnership, not necessarily a fund. Well, you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, if you've only got two or three high net worth individuals, you know, cause you know, maybe someone comes to you, Jonathan and says, Hey, yeah, I've got $15 million. There's half your fund raised, you know, just like right. that. Jonathan, with that being said, as the American economy continues to grow, how is and you're focusing your time on raising capital over the next six to twelve months? How are you seeing the investment strategy going to change with given the presidential elections and and keeping your finger on the pulse in terms of getting good deals for your your clients who are now part of the fund? So I don't think that the election really is going to change very much. What's going on in the world outside the United States? is going to have a bigger impact and i'm i'm not sure exactly where that's going but it seems to me to be the case that we're starting to see a little bit of a repeat of you know what we had in the recession in the sense that there's a little bit of a flight to safety so mm-hmm. we're having more money coming to the US so even though like economically it may be we may start seeing some of the impact of economic decline overseas affecting our economy in terms of like the availability of investment capital i think that investment capital is going to continue to flow here right so and even if you're not if you're not dealing with foreign investors per se money is money is fungible so you know if you get a, a whole bunch of chinese money floods into new york then it tends to push the new york money to dallas and then mm-hmm. The New York money pushes the Dallas money to South Carolina. You know, I mean, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of how it happens. So, um, so I think that actually, from a fundraising perspective, it it should be good. And and also, you know, to the extent from a sort of personal, not a selfish thing exactly, but sort of it is self interested. You know, I, I think that if there's more money coming into those major markets, it's going to continue to depress cap rates. Mm-hmm. It's going to continue to make those deals look less and less attractive, and. Um, it's going to make what we're doing more attractive. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, obviously it's going to, it's going to that flood of money sloshing around everywhere drives down cap rates everywhere. Right. But we're still we're still looking in, in South Carolina in the markets that we look at with cap rates that are a couple of points higher than you're looking at in the major markets. Mm-hmm. So they're you know, and they're always going to be that way. Right. So right. Uh, you know, they're never. You know, if cap rates in South Carolina start looking like cap rates in New York, then I'm gonna. You know, you, we should all be out of this business because something's <laughs> seriously wrong. Right. But I, I don't think that'll ever happen. And you know, as long as there are investors out there who are looking to get yield in you know relatively safe investments like multifamily, then I think that you know we should be in good shape. So maybe we won't be able to produce the same kinds of returns we've been producing because we we're buying. That at a little more expensive price, but mm-hmm. it's still think it's going to be attractive vis-a-vis the major markets. Right, right, and and that sort of brings me to one of one of my more last questions or group of last questions is that you alluded to earlier was the type or the you, you look for value at I assume and and as you start raising funds, are you what type of class asset are you going after? You chasing in north in North and South Carolina. So, yeah, so we, we really look for sort of very, very minor value add opportunities. We're mm-hmm. more of a buy and hold shop. So we, we look for stuff that's stabilized, currently cash flowing 
where we can pay our investors, you know, give them a dividend check after the first quarter after we close. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, we're we're looking to start sending out checks right away. And and you can't do that on a on a true value add, you know, where you're doing a lot of repositioning. That that being said, we will we will go and buy deals where you know we need to put in a couple hundred thousand of CapEx to improve the curb appeal, you know, do fix some stuff. I mean that's we're we're perfectly fine doing that. But the deal's gotta be stabilized and cash flowing before we go in. Sure. The exit is also different with a fund than for syndication. Mm-hmm. So with a syndication, every deal is different. It's got a different group of investors. You know, even though the, the sponsor typically has the right to control the deal, you know, on a practical level, you want your investors to be happy and you want them to to be behind your decision to sell or refi or whatever. Right. But you're still you're not able to basically, you know, if you tried to package up two of your deals together or three of your deals together to sell them. It's going to be really tough when when every single deal is with a different group. Yep. With a fund, it's different. I mean, with a fund, we've got some real arbitrage opportunities available to us. And typically, what sort of uh, how's the fund different, and how do investors get paid differently? Is it similar to a syndication, or you're just paying dividends and they have an equity stake in the deal as well? So they the investors would just have an equity. They would own the fund. Right. They wouldn't own individual deals. I mean, they, indirectly they do because it's you know it's a it's an LLC owned by the fund, whatever, but they don't actually, there's two layers up um, ownership wise. Right. So, you know, they'll just get distributions the same way we would do a syndication because we run our syndications like funds. Right. So um, it wouldn't like really it. change for us. Yeah. Like, 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 like I was just going to say, like, like, like I do, like you do, you set up an LLC and people buy into that LLC and uh, right. have an ownership stake in it. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the payment schedule would be the same. I mean, we'd right. be, we'd be looking for deals that are cash flowing right away. The only difference is that, you know, the, the good thing about a fund is that you've got diversification within the fund. Mm-hmm. So, you know, typically, and like our portfolio is no different, you know, we've got, we've got four deals. We've got, you know, one that's performing exactly the way that we thought mm-hmm. we've got one that's like, essentially doubling our underwriting and can't, still can't figure out why it's just performing <laughs> so well. Right. And one that's doing almost as well as that. And then one that's like a, one that's just been underperforming the whole time. And it's hard, it's difficult. You know, it's finally now where we want it to be, but we're digging out of a two year hole. Right. right. So, and, and the investors, because they're all different, you know, some investors are thrilled because they're on the deal that's performing like gangbusters. And then some investors are unhappy because they're in the deal that didn't perform as well as we thought. Mm-hmm. If you're in a fund, you get the diversification of the whole portfolio across yep. the board. Yep. You know, and, you've, and if one property is not producing cash that quarter because it had some unexpected capex or what have you, you know, you're, you're still getting cash coming off the other deals to pay the investors. So the investors, the certainty of getting paid is much higher you know right. they're they're much more likely to get to get that that stable continuous cash flow in, in a fund the problem with doing a fund is that you know a lot of investors are worried about giving you discretion mm-hmm. over the money right. so that's the that's why they like challenge yeah that's the biggest challenge that's why they want to do deal by deal basis mm-hmm. so we'll probably wind up with some kind of a hybrid you know structure where uh there we're getting you know, legally binding commitments, but we're not actually getting the money in the door, right. you know, sitting in the bank. Yeah. Um, I'd love it if we could get it sitting in the bank, but probably on the first fund, that might be fund two or fund three. <laughs> you know, st- when we... Baby steps, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, Jonathan, that is just an incredible story. I love every single bit about that and, and very inspiring stuff. When does, when are you looking, you said to close the fund in six months time? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, if we're, I think, but we want to start closing commitments, as I said, in the first, the first 90 days. Right. So to at least get, get the first, you know, the first closing teed up and, and then we'll continue to close rounds throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, Jonathan, with all your experience using syndication and now you're upping the bar and raising a capital for a fund to help grow your business, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips for the US. You ready to get into it? Top five. I got to come up with five. (laughs) What's the most successful habit to practice to keep you on track towards your goals? Well, let's see. I, I, I think that, I mean, the stuff that keeps me on track has nothing to do with real estate per mm-hmm. se. It's more personal stuff. Yep. Uh, you know, I think having a really regimented routine is something that keeps me focused. And, um, you know, I try to get up the same time every day. I get up very early in the morning. I get up at 4.30. Mm-hmm. I do it on the weekends. Um, I, I do that so that I can have some time to myself before the kids get up. I do things in the morning like meditate and journal, you know, just to get myself focused. And then I, I have a routine when I come to the office. I, I try to block out every morning to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I bought some software that allows me to shut the internet off. You know, I, I really I really have found that if I don't, if I'm not very, very disciplined about focusing on getting work done, then it's very easy for things to unravel. And, you know, when you're even though I'm bringing on partners now and this, the business is growing, I've still been working as essentially a solopreneur right. for the last, you know, several years. And, and, you know, you folks all know who do this, that, that it is tough to get, to stay focused sometimes because you're by yourself all the time. You kind of need social contact. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you know, you kind of will get on Facebook just to kind of see what's going on. <laughs> and then, and then before you know it, like it's three hours later and, <laughs> <laughs> your, your whole day, all the things you plan to do, you can't do now, and and you feel terrible about yourself. So, right, right. to avoid that, I, I I have set up structures in my in my life and my business to to keep me focused. So I I try to, you know, keep phone calls and meetings to certain times mm-hmm, or certain mm-hmm. certain certain days of the week, and I I'm very scheduled. So that's uh, that's a big. Jonathan, yeah. what's the most influential tool you use in your real estate business, and why? I well, I would say I guess this isn't really a tool, um, but I would say that that networking, without yep. a doubt, is yeah, is the most tool. important. Yeah, is the most important part of this business. I mean, th- this this business is just. I mean, every business is based on relationships, but for some reason, real estate just seems to be even more so. Mm-hmm. And there's so much trust is a big thing. I mean, obviously, every every in every business, trust is important. But it seems to be in real estate. You know, this is an old-fashioned business where people still want to do stuff on handshakes, mm-hmm. or they only want to deal with people that they could do a handshake deal with, even though they obviously paper everything up. And the only way to develop those relationships is to be out there meeting people, you know, and getting to know them. And it takes time. I mean, yep. this is this is why this business can be a bit frustrating. It's you know. I, I get very angry when I see people out there pitching real estate as kind of a way to get rich quick yes. because it, it just, it, it is not. And you, you know, if you've listened to my story for the last hour, you can see that 
I've been through a lot. There's been a lot of ups and downs. You have to be very, very patient and you have to be set up for it. You know, if, if I didn't have some savings in the bank, I never could have done it. You know, mm-hmm. so you have to, you can't just run out and think like, oh, I'm going to go get rich because I'm going to buy some real estate. Exactly. It's, you, you have to, this is a, it's a hard slog and yep. Yep. you have to kind of do it methodically. And that includes the relationship building part. And that takes a long time. And, you know, the, when you talk about, you know, the investors that I had, my first investors, I knew both of those guys for 20 years. Right. You know, yeah, like yeah. they yeah. trusted me enough because I, I'd known them for such a long time that they knew I had integrity. They knew that even though I didn't really know what I was doing yet, that I was the kind of person who would make sure that I not only that I learned how to do what I was doing, but that I would set up the business in a way that it would take care of them. You know, yes. so I'm not out there trying to manage these properties myself. I've got professional management in there. You know, I got people doing the stuff. I'm not trying to keep my own books. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't try to do the things that I don't have a capacity to do. Right. My 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 abilities are in uh, you know finding deals, underwriting them, deciding if they're good or not, and putting them together. Right. And and I and I leave the other things to the professionals who who do it well. So you you have to. You know, but those guys knew that that's what I would do, and that's because I knew them for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, and they, they, knew, they knew me as a person. You know, fantastic, so. good, good stuff. All, all great takeaway points that you know, real estate isn't some. It's it's a marathon, not a sprint, and that yes. marathon can take be a frustrating marathon, as you and I both know. Uh, right. I know, I know that you can sometimes get a bit stagnant. Uh, and I love what you said about the the setting up your processes and turning off Facebook because, like any startup business. You can sometimes get lulled into a false sense of security and in, 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 everything's on you right now when you're a solo startup entrepreneur that if you don't work hard, money's not coming through the door. So yeah. it's, it's, it's very important to keep the processes. A couple last questions is who's the most influential person in your career? Well, I, I'd have to go back to my law days to talk about so who has influenced me. Um, I had a mentor when I, back in my early days as a lawyer who named Leslie Moore and Leslie really taught me how to be a professional mm-hmm. and uh, more than being a lawyer per se. You know, she taught me what being professional was all about. And that's something that's carried forward uh, into this business. And I think it's one reason that I've been successful and that I have been able to gain people's uh, trust because I, I, I show up professionally and people take the message that that I know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm competent and I can be trusted. And and Jonathan, last thing is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? The best place to reach me these days is at my blog. I've been blogging about real estate and I'm happy to blog about things that people, about topics that people want to hear about. So if you email me at jonathan at themortarblog.com, you can email me there or you can just go to the blog and mm-hmm. sign up. It's it's www.themortarblog.com. And and mortar like brick and mortar sort of thing. Like like brick and mortar. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, well, Jonathan, you are another cracking entrepreneur who is absolutely kicking some massive goals right now. Well done. You've given us all some incredible food for thought. I know I've taken a lot away from this show. You know, just going out and understanding building your processes and understanding the next steps you've got to go, refining your pitch, going and talking to high net worth individuals and family offices. But also in saying that, you know, you're focused on understanding that network is still very much a part of your business. 
uh, and it will continue to be so. And, and I thought you gave some very good pointers on to people who are starting out in real estate and investing in the United States. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme, and it will take some time, and it'll be frustrating. And you know uh, from your experience of four years of ups and downs and leaving your day job before finally seeing some traction now. So so well done, mate. It's, it's, it's an incredible story, and uh, I'm really glad I got you on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. I'm very happy to be on the show and happy to be on the show in the future and give you an update. Fantastic, mate. Well, there you have it. More incredible, straightforward insight into understanding what it takes to go from being a lawyer one day to raising capital for a fund the next. Not an easy feat and truly inspiring stuff. If you're an investor interested in learning more about raising capital for a fund, or you simply would like to learn more about being an investor in Jonathan's fund, then give me an email. Uh, As I mentioned, all my guests on the show are only too willing to help other investors out there learn and grow and learn about real estate investing here in the United States. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's show and conversation with Jonathan, and any links we mentioned will go up on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com. Just remember to click on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge as that's what we're all about on this show continuing to grow your financial iq to continue the conversation with me you can find me on facebook on twitter by searching either reed goosens or rsm property group and remember to leave an i-star itunes review below as it helps us grow our community of international listeners eager to invest in the united states so until next week take care be safe and remember happy investing